Um, one of my favorite speakers on the topic, on the topic of transformation and awakening and possibilities, um, Whitley Strieber really blasted onto the scene. Well, of course he was a screenwriter for The Hunger Wolfen and lots of uh, major Hollywood projects. But when Communion hit the market, that went to number one and he, he was really the first to picture what these beings look like. I mean, people had some idea, but when the cover of Communion came out, um, was that 89, I think, Whitley? Was that, um, it, it, wait, put your, put your mic on. Yeah. Yes. In, yeah, um, in the late 80s, let's just say, he, he and his wife, Anne, got 200,000 letters from people around the world that sort of said, oh my God, this has happened to me. These contact experiences, this, this um, level of encounter. So I'm really happy Whitley's here to talk about this. And I also wanna to talk to you, Whitley, not just about your close encounters, but your book, which was so inspiring to hear about on Linda Moulton Howe's show last night. I also have a, a special person who wants to ask you questions about that. But let's just first talk about as the government disclosure is coming forward and we're in the middle of it, we're about to cross a huge threshold in awakening and consciousness it's already leaking through in the media. Uh, if you've watched 60 Minutes, the first question that um, Bill Whitaker asked Louise Alexander right at the beginning says, well, tell me, are UFOs real? And Lou Alessandro practically, I say, laughs and says, come on, Bill, we're past that already. The Pentagon has said UFOs are real. And so this gets us to really why Whitley is so important within this disclosure, because, you know, the government can talk all they want about things in the sky, but they won't talk about yet who's in them, why they're here, what are they doing, and how they're interacting with people. So my first question is to you, Whitley, what happens to close encounter witnesses? What, what do you think their role is when, and, and it's happening now, the government admits that UFOs are real. So where do, where do we fit in? Where is your story? How did they approach that? And how do they even, is that a couple of years or 20 years down the road? I mean, we just want to get used to it's real, but, but where do you think it goes? Some of the people involved in this would like that the answer to the B, it goes nowhere and, the, and, and they never have to address it. However, that is simply not going to happen. The people involved are the story as much as, and in many, in many, at many levels more than the yeah. objects that we are seeing in the sky. <clears throat> um, now, we can't rely on data and opinions slipped out from behind the barrier of secrecy. This issue belongs to the outer world, specifically to us, the public, the sciences, the academic community, and above all, to the experiencers and their relationship to this. And the reason is that the experiencers contain within their memory a message of some kind that is almost certainly coherent 
and can be understood, but there's a huge amount of work to be done. The academic community needs to revisit our entire understanding of gods, demons, fairy folk, and all such stories. Folklore emerges out of uh, the imagination to a great degree, but it also emerges when people see things they can't understand and try to make sense of them. Our rock foundational assumption of all of the folklore, the tales of gods, and everything in the past, right down to and including things like Ezekiel's wheel, which is obviously an observation, the, the general assumption in the academic community and the social sciences is these are all imaginary. Mm -hmm. We've got to turn that upside down and face the fact that that may not be the case. That in fact, it may be observation that has generated our entire mythological content of the whole species. I mean, you talk about change. This is the biggest change in the history of this species since we, well, probably in the whole history of the species. Yeah. The biggest change that can be identified as a historical event. I, let me go on a little bit. Yeah. Archaeology. Okay. We have turned over backwards in the conventional world to explain away artifacts like Nan Madal in the Pacific. What this is, is a group of artificial islands built of gigantic basalt logs. And if you can believe it, the assumption, if you go on the National Geographic Channel or somewhere, is that these were built by uh, uh, Polynesians using canoes in the 12th century AD, as if anyone at any time could move an object like this weighing some tons with canoes, of course not. We don't know how it was built. Saxahuaman in Peru is another perfect example. We do not know how that was built. We couldn't build it today. The gigantic platform at Baalbek said to have been built by Roman engineers. No, it's not possible. They didn't have the equipment to move stones that large. Why do we know that? Because we don't have such equipment now. Now, and the Great Pyramid, uh, we have the uh, conventional assumption is it's called, it was built by Cheops. The whole uh, uh, revisionist archeological community has been addressing this for years and they have to be given respect because we have to erase our vision of the past, our conventional vision of the past, and replace it with a new and more accurate vision because somebody's been here probably for a long time or our world would not look like this, our myths would not read the way they do, and we would not be what we are. Now, as far as UFO con are, are concerned, UFOs, the greatest resource is not the materials in possession of the government. I mean, I've got some of the materials right here in this office. And what I have specifically in this office is a fragment of 
the external sheath of an object that probably the one that crashed at Roswell. And if you look at it under a scanning, uh, uh, not under, under a 600 power microscope, you see it is uh, layers of magnesium, which have somehow been turned into a foam and thinner layers of bismuth. But when you look at it under the microscope, you see there is nothing between the layers. It's not, they're not glued together with anything. So what force is holding them together? Uh, Linda Moulton Howe sold hers to TTSA and it's being uh, analyzed by the US Army. I would not give mine up. We analyzed it at uh, Southwest Research in San Antonio, Texas back in the 90s, but I'm not willing to give it up until I can be absolutely certain that high level labs with the equipment and the open-mindedness necessary to use it correctly and no connection whatsoever to the secret world can analyze it. So I hold on to it. But there are other materials and it's going to be found that I hope in, in, in some of the releases that some of those materials have already been understood and, and uh, the information has been bled out into industry, especially when it regard, it, with regard to the metals. Um, but there's another resource. This is the one I started to talk about that's really, really important. That's us, the close encounter witnesses. Now, many people think of themselves as close encounter witnesses, and indeed many people are. When we didn't get just 200,000 letters, we got, oh gosh, I bet we got half a million letters over the years. Um, and assembled them into a wonderful little book called The Communion Letters. And I'm gonna be reading just a couple of those letters in a few minutes. Uh, the, um, uh, what these letters tell us is that Carl Sagan was right. He was right when he said, if we actually contact aliens, it is going to be stranger than the strangest things we can possibly imagine. But how do we deal with this in, in not in, in an anecdotal way or in a narrative way, that's, which is all we've been able to do so far, but at a higher level of finish? Here's how. There are people with implants in their bodies. There's one right here. There are people who have had implants removed. We have records of who those people are. Now, we can get people like that and we can work with them. This is gonna take money and it's gonna, it's what it's gonna take at the beginning is for the National Sciences Foundation to accept that granting in the area of UFO and ET research and research into this whole field is valid granting so that places like the Ford Foundation can grant in this area. Uh, they can't really do it now, not without the support of the National Science Foundation. Okay, memories, all memories are a mix of imagination and recollection. How do we differentiate in especially in a case like a close encounter experience where the person 
does not understand much of what they are seeing, how do we differentiate between real memory and imagination or memory that's been distorted? Well, it turns out we can, we actually can do that. We have a type of machine called a functional MRI. And if you get someone in a functional MRI machine, that means it analyzes the, you can actually see where the brain is collecting information and, and, and exactly where that information is being processed into vocalizations. This means that you can get people who we know have had contact and it's time to stop saying these nonsensical things such as someone got a bit of a meteor embedded in their calf muscle. Come on, it's over. It's over. They were involved in some unknown way with someone who did this to them. And it's been proven for years. Roger Lear proved it, God love him. Uh, he, he proved it very simply by demonstrating that these objects that he was taking out of people had encapsulations of epidermis around them. That's the second layer of skin just below the surface. They were embedded in deep muscle. Now, the body does not have genetic encoding to create epidermis in deep muscle. It would have calcified the object instead or and slowly rejected it. The, the epidermal encapsulation meant that the object would not be rejected by the body. The body wouldn't see it as a foreign object. We cannot create an encapsulation like that now, but somebody can, does, and did. So we know these objects came from an unknown source. One of the objects that we obtained at Southwest Research uh, had been emitting an FM signal, a very low level FM signal, uh, when it was in sight in the person's body. We decided after we got that object that we would put it into an, uh, a machine called an X-ray diffraction machine after analyzing it under the ele scanning electron microscope to see its, its mineral content. We determined that, like most of the objects, it appeared to be a piece of meteoric iron. So that would mean, since it was iron, it would immediately diffract x-rays, because x-rays don't go through iron. Now, the reason we wanted to put it in the diffraction machine is we wanted to see if we could detect any kind of crystallization in it that would explain how it could emit FM signals. So we put it in the diffractor and the diffractor made a normal return on its first pass. It cycles again and again and again, this type of machine around an object, gradually building up on an image of its, of its crystalline structure. And the second pass, it didn't see it. This little piece of iron had become X-ray invisible. So we let it pass three or four more times and didn't catch anything. We took it back, put it in the SEM, same exact cons cons uh, constituent. It was essentially a piece of nickel iron, probably something out of a meteorite. 
we left it in x-ray diffraction for 36 hours. It never returned another signal. That means we were looking at a piece of extraordinary technology. This was a piece of technology that could somehow emit an FM signal. Now we can figure out how that could be done. That's not rocket science. It's close, but it's not rocket science. But how in the world did it protect its secrets by becoming X-ray invisible? That's the kind of thing. It was, of course, this was blown off. In those days, when we were working at, at, at Southwest Research, the director told me and Bill Mallow, the head of material science who was doing this work, one of the founders of the Institute, which is the only reason it was allowed to be done, that, quote, our CIA contractor, which is more than 50% of their budget, takes a dim view of UFO research. Now we know why. They're trying to keep it secret. So you can do, you can use anything you want. The whole institute is open to you, but you can't put anything down on institute stationary and Bill must report to you, Whitley, verbally only. He can't write any of this down. Now Bill has passed on, but we need to go back to this. And this time, not under that kind of outrageous constraint, because this is the most important thing, as I said at the beginning, that has ever happened in the history of this species. It's incredibly, incredibly important. But once we have identified people who we have physical evidence that they have had contact, then we can study them and listen to their stories as they repeat their memories in the fMRI machine, and we can see how they are assembling those memories and what part of the memory is being assembled by the part of the brain that remembers facts and what part of the memory is being assembled by the part of the brain that is essentially building imaginary, building imagination. And if we do that enough, we will find a baseline of what these people actually remember. That's the beginning of really seriously understanding this. It is possible. It can be done. Uh, we can, for example, we can go back to the people who wrote the communion letters. I have all of their information and addresses. The letters themselves are archived at Rice University. Thanks to Dr. Jeffrey Kripal's foresight, those letters are now part of a university archive and they're not going to be lost. Plus other people who have implants write me on unknowncountry.com all the time saying, I've got an implant, what should I do? And the answer is we can't do a thing about it. With the, the passing of Dr. Roger Lear, the one person, a true pioneer who was willing to work on this and do something about it and had a medical credential, even though he was just a podiatrist, was lost to us. We have to rebuild this. Now. How, how ready are we for, you know, so we're just getting used to the fact that things are out there, at least the public is. How ready, how far down the line, when do you think the whole encounter, close encounter, witness, abduction will come into the mainstream and in the way that UFOs are now coming into the mainstream? 
Yesterday, a sort of junky British newspaper called The Sun published a story about a close encounter witness, this poor character called Stan Romanek. And the headline was something like, Pedo UFO abductee has five, claims he has five hybrid children. In other words, it was the worst possible way of addressing us and our part in this. To, to, to write a story like that now, it just really disturbed me because the sun is, did, did they really find, have, who made the decision? Someone made a decision that looks like all of this stuff is coming out publicly about UFOs. We need to make the abductees and the close encounter witnesses look as bad as possible. So was that someone at the newspaper or was it something more dangerous? Was it someone at British military intelligence headquarters, GCHQ? They take a dim view of us also. Everybody takes a dim view of us, but it's over. We're here. We are the future. We are the ones who have the information embedded in us. And believe me, the visitors know this and they have built a coherent and sensible set of in, uh, informations inside our minds. I, we, are, we, we have this. Are you, are you ready to go in front of congressional hearings and, 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 and kind of lay the piece out as, as the UFO situation unfolds? This would be someone like you that Congress would go to, I think, and start to say, okay, give us the backstory here, which is the. Well, I, I would hope so. Uh, but, uh, and this is exactly what I would say to them. I just said to you, to all of you. Uh, my, my concern is that, you know, there is so much swirling around this people with big egos wanting position and all of this stuff, and people who aren't really in. In, in contact, uh, claiming otherwise, and it's just gonna, it could turn into a real mess. And then there's the problem that I know quite a few of the people who are involved in, uh, in this. In fact, uh, uh, Jeremy, Jeremy Corbell and uh, George Knapp are my guests on Dreamland, my podcast this weekend. And they're both wonderful guys, and they're very much on our side, by the way. But there are others who would rather sweep this under the rug. Some very important people in this have said to me very frankly that they expect that the close encounter experience and the abduction experience will not be addressed anytime soon, if ever. But what it, I'll tell you what's going to happen. This is going to blow up in their faces. Because it, the first shot across the bow is that lunatic story in the sun. But the media is going to pick up on this. What about aliens? If, if, and what about people? What about all these people? <laughs> and I think the first reaction of the intelligence community is to do anything it can to basically throw us under the bus and debunk us in any way they can. To and I am very worried about that hmm. because 
they have to face the fact they're not in control of this. They never have been. Right. This is about us, we the people, and the visitors, whoever they are. The entire government effort is a sideshow in comparison to this. My book, Communion, mm -hmm. is about contact. It is the baseline of contact. That's where contact between us and them started as a cultural phenomenon. It existed before that, of course, but as a cultural phenomenon, that's where it started. And it was intended that way. My wife, Anne, was incredibly prescient and knowledgeable about this. She was connected with it somehow. I have no idea how. And, and she would laugh in my face if, if she, in fact, she probably is actually laughing in my face at this moment. <laughs> I wear both rings because we're still in contact. She's uh, right behind I have, you laughing, Whitley. She's right there behind you. I, exactly. Uh, oh, people often see that picture change its expression and wink and all kinds of things. But anyway, I wear the two rings because we're still together. We're just down to one body. But you know, you're saying the really key thing that we're expecting government or people in some official capacity say that this is real. Obviously, we don't need people to tell us what our experiences, what experiences are real and not real. Well, but, actually, we do need that. That's exactly do? what you know, that's exactly what we need, mm -hmm. because the mind. I would love to go into an fMRI sc scanner, and 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 narrate my entire life story, and because the mind fills in the blanks, no matter how hard you try, if you have an experience that doesn't make sense to you, your mind will will alter it in order to make it make sense. This is what folklore is, which I said earlier. Folklore happens some, to some extent. It's simple, simply people telling stories, but it, most of it happens when people see things or have experiences that they cannot understand. But folklore there's enough of us. There's what? enough of us coming forward now, like you and your book, who validates other people's experiences. So there's a collective um, agreement about the nature of reality. Well, we can, yeah, but we can, we can narrow this down using science. We can figure out, if I did my, if I narrated my life story in an fMRI machine, we would be able to tell which parts of my story to a great extent, it's not perfect, are em emerging out of the, my imagination, which parts are emerging out of the part of my brain that perceives facts. Mm -hmm. right. And that would be an extraordinary thing. And think of how many people you know, and I know, who have had incredible lives like mine and uh, like so many others listening to this show right now. We could figure out what of our memories are factual and what are not. And I'll tell you right now, I'll predict which parts of our memories our brains see as facts and which part of our memories our brains see as imaginary. Mm. Our brains are going to turn out to see the parts that are stranger than strange, the strangest parts of all.
strange beyond belief, those are the parts that are going to turn out to be real. Mm, right. I want to ask you uh, about your, your book coming up. I have one more question along the this sort of idea. Is there any truth to the fact, or in your opinion, that um, Eisenhower, President Eisenhower, made an agreement with an ET race to exchange technology for genetic manipulations or abductions? I don't have any idea about that. I do know that Richard Nixon knew an exceptionally large amount about this subject because he took Jackie Gleason to see one of the intact objects at an airbase in Florida. I know that because Jackie Gleason's wife was not only public about it, she spoke to me about it personally, and someone who else who had seen an object uh, told me, described it to me. And I, that's why I'm saying to the people who are orchestrating all of this, it's time to put one of these objects in the Smithsonian. And of course, their reaction is there's an infinitesimal chance of that, although they admit it's a good idea. Uh, the reason I think we should do that is there are two reasons. The first reason is it gives the public a chance to come into contact with these materials. It's not like looking at something that we build. Right. Believe you me, when you look at these materials, they look back at you. It is not like things in this world, not at all. Now, now I don't mean that the flying saucer itself looks back at you. I do mean that the presence that is behind it will know you when you see it. And you will feel that in yourself. You will right. feel it. And you will never forget it. Mm. And it won't forget you either. <laughs> no, I, I, I think though you are right. We are at a turning point in history. The planet is waking up to this bigger reality. And we just need to accept the fact that we are part of something bigger. I just want to switch a little bit to you, the book that if you want to talk about Jesus, a new Jesus. vision, which I really enjoyed your interview with Lindy Moulton Howen. But how does the whole Jesus story fit into these last 30 years that you've been delving into with the ETs? Okay. I have to start by explaining that our dead, so-called, mm -hmm who are not dead, I think that they think of us as the dead, in fact, are very involved in this. At that level, and in also a parallel universe that is a mirror universe of this one that I talk about in a new world, there is no barrier between the living and the dead and no barrier between the ETs and, the, and us. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's a, that's a sort of baseline here. Uh, I, after I, after Annie passed away, I have this implant in my ear. It's been there since May of 1989, when it was put in um, by two people. I know a lot about it because someone on the inside wanted to study it recently. Uh, and he, he was looking to, he wanted me to get a, a CAT scan of it, which I did. But he was looking to, I'm sure, to suggest that I get it removed so he could study it more. more. 
And I was not too willing to do that. But in any case, what happened was a few nights before the CAT scan, a knock came at my door at about four in the morning, a very rapid fire machine-like knock. And I know that knock. Uh, I'm not gonna tell you exactly how many knocks it is, but it's a, it's a specific, specific number. It's not seven or nine because I don't want anyone to try to fool me to come up here and it'd be quite dangerous to try to come into this apartment that way. Anyway, be that as it may, um, I heard this signal. I immediately went and opened the front door. There were two men there. They came in. They explained how the implant works. They explained that what it does and what happens with the implant is it, it it opens a slit, and now in my right eye, it used to be my left eye, in my right eye, when I'm working, and words flash through it at breakneck speed. Uh, that started to happen only after Annie passed away. And I found that my ability to think and do research really increased. And so, uh, I decided to practice on this by writing a long historical novel, which is called In Hitler's House. And I published it under the name Jonathan Lane. And I did that to practice with the implant. And I learned how to use it that way. It works by synchronicity, but it also works in another way that they explained to me. That is to say the words racing through are drawn from my own unconscious mind into the level just below consciousness. And when they race through my brain, my, the, the slit, they actually are re respond, my conscious mind responds to them, even though it can't read them, it responds to them subliminally. And I get ideas that way. It's like having an incredibly powerful muse that draws from my own deepest memories, uh, stuff up to the for forefront. And they told me it was, invented by a man named Constantine, they said, raw dive. And I thought that name sounds very vaguely familiar. And so after they left, I immediately Googled it. And I realized, of course, he was mispronouncing it. It's Constantine Rodave, the uh, electronic voice phenomenon pioneer who died in, back in the 70s. Now, I told this story to a friend. And the friend said, well, you know, the strange thing is, that I have that same slit in my eye. And I've often wondered, words pass through it very quickly and I've often wondered what it was. He is the, one of the world's leading experts on Constantine Rodave. And this, I think this object was, was invented by Rodave and put while on the other side and put in my ear by people who were the same type of people as came to my door to explain it that night, people who live on the edge between this reality and what we call the world of the dead. So uh, using that object, I wrote three books. Afterlife Revolution is about how to drop finally get past the whole idea that the dead don't exist. It's, a, it's intended to convince people of this in ways that are acceptable to a Western rationalist mind. The next book, 
a new world is what do we do in our relationship with the visitors? What is contact? What do they want? What are the dangers? What are the benefits? It's a survey of that based around the great comment by uh, Colonel Philip Corso, probably the most important comment in the whole lexicon of the close encounter experience. Uh, when, he was at, when he asked a visitor in a situation where they needed a radar turned off for 10 minutes so they could leave a place, he said to this visitor, 10 minutes is, can be a long time in my profession. In the military, obviously, it can. And what's on offer for us? The words were, the rep response was, a new world if you can take it. Now is the time for this. Can we bear it? Can we wrest it from their hands? Because they're not going to give us gifts. There's not going to be anyone dropping in on the White House lawn with an anti-gravity cell phone or whatever. Forget it. We have to do this ourselves, sink or swim. We make our own decisions about our future. And I, can, I don't have time, and I can go into exactly why that is. Then the third book, what is our stance in all of this? How do we, the parts of this are dangerous. Parts of it are very dark and very evil. That's there. It's there. I've lived it myself. What do we do? How do we take a position that gives us, empowers us to do this well and right and to make contact work? You have no choice then. You have to go back to the teachings of Jesus. You have to do this because Jesus taught us how to live on behalf of the good. And when you are truly in your body, your blood, your mind, your soul, committed to the mission of the good, then the dark side of this becomes a source of knowledge rather than a source of danger. But here's the problem nowadays. The religion has been corrupted. Let's face it. The Catholic Church has got all these pederasts in it. Um, the 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 extreme right-wing religions are hardly recognizable as Christian. If you read the Didache, which is the rule of Christian communities that was written by the apostles in, in somewhere around 70 AD, we don't live that way anymore. But I'll tell you something about that rule. It took the community of Christians through the, the total collapse of the Roman Empire, a near end of the world thing that happened in 536 AD when it, uh, there was a huge volcanic explosion in Iceland and the planet was dark for 18 months. And out of that, there was almost nothing left in the Western world except the little Christian communities because they lived by the didache. And we, we better look at it very carefully because we're gonna need it again soon. But what about people who don't want anything to do with Christianity? And there's lots, most people don't. So I wrote a book that explains what Christianity is, 
how it came about when Constantine basically turned Jesus, the teacher, into Jesus, the Roman God, replacement for Apollo, and how we can look past that to the teachings. And readers of my book can come to understand how to use the parables and the Beatitudes in their own lives. You don't even have to be a believer in anything. You can be a complete atheist and still gain value from the teachings. And the book also shows that the resurrection happened. He did turn into a being of light. And it is a testament not to the fact that he was someone distant from us, a divine being that really basically we just have to look up to. His whole teaching was about we are him and he is us. It is a teaching not about the distant power of some divinity. It is a teaching about the power of mankind when mankind is allied with the good, which is called God in most of the gospels, but in the extraordinary gospel of Mary, the gospel of Mary Magdalene, the word God does not appear. It's translated as the good. The book is about allying yourself with the good, no matter what you believe. That is a beautiful overview of the last, you know, 20 years of your career. I have someone here with me who is a, an expert on the shroud. And he just wants to comment on some of that here. JJ, do you have something to say about um, your investigations and what Whitley's saying as- um, you know, I think Whitley is right on schedule the Nagamati library is beginning to under, be understood in terms of this great depth of a new language of experience where the Christ that has risen is a model of our own ascension process in connection with higher intelligence. Right. And in the work that I've done years ago with translating from the Coptic to Nagamati, the Gospel of Mary, as Whitley just said, stands out really in terms of the goodness of creation. Mm. So where do we go? Uh, I'll ask you. Well, Whitley, where do you see this going in terms of now the greater understanding of the, shall we say, the inner Christ, the Christ that is present within us, as opposed to that which is 6,000 light years away? This is, in my opinion, been the problem of <laughs> the religionists and theologians who put God way into space rather than into the human heart, into the human experience. Thank you. Yes. Well, Jesus taught it basically he he never said the kingdom of god was up in the sky he said the kingdom of god is within you and you can join it right now right now what is the key to this the key to this is living by the parables and the beatitudes and then you do become as a little child and you do become as the lilies of the field mm. so the but the e i don't get the the ETs are here to show us part of our greater mind, but um, they seem to be missing, or some aspect, at least some aspect of these beings are missing the Beatitudes, perhaps that's been, you know, my, how do those beings, the visitors fit into what you're saying about this higher teaching of, of spirit? This is, a challenge to us, a new world if you can take it. Now that means 
that somebody is holding on to it and we are not going to get what they are holding in their hands unless we are strong. We're not, not going to. We have to be strong. And I have been face to face with the evil that's in this. I've seen it. I've lived it. My wife and I have had the experience of having uh, uh, semen. I had semen taken from me. I was raped. And I made the mistake in communion of calling it a rectal probe. And every bully on the planet Earth found a way to laugh at me and sneer at me because of my rape. Now, my wife lost a baby. She's passed on now. And toward the end of her life, we, we decided that after the, she had passed on, I could talk a little bit about this. It was in the context of one of these encounters. This is as dark as it gets. It doesn't get darker than this. Well, it, it can. I think there are people who have disappeared. And I, I don't flinch from this in a new world because we can't. We have to make this work for ourselves. And that's what the Jesus book is about. We face the fact that this is not easy, that they are not all sweetness and light. And then we go to the Jesus teaching and we find out that the light is in us. We go inside ourselves for the light and we shine forth just like he did, just like Mary Magdalene did. We shine forth and everything changes for us. They have to respect our light because the good is more powerful. The dark always ends the same way. It's entropic and it ends in total stillness and silence. The good is extropic. It is always increasing and there is no end to ecstasy. It always, that's why the universe is expanding. It is expanding on a wave of ecstasy. Okay, JJ. Uh, Whitley, I wanted to tell you that I worked uh, indirectly with Don, Dr. Don Linich at Propulsion Lab who did the image enhancements of the Clouds of Turin. And it was the five, as you know, a five foot seven inch man in a state of weightlessness surrounded by light. And this was a, a great illumination to the scholars and scientists who were part of the STIRP group and later the ASSIST yes. group, that there was Jesus seen in a state of weightlessness surrounded by light, light going in all directions. To have that homogenous light would require a perfect situation that was not being disrupted by any physical force or objects. Right. It, it was uh, it was an ascension, basically. We're at portal to ascension. But also, Whitley, how if you're talking about the dark side, won't don't you think the government, as the thing comes up, will start to grab onto that dark element and forget the rest and put people in fear? I mean, they they're used to doing that. So well. Uh, let's, let's go back to the crabwood formation, the crop circle formation uh, that was laid down in the early 2000s in England. Uh, and what it is is an image of a gray and beside it there is a disc that turns out to be readable as ASCII characters. Uh, beware the bearers of false 
gifts and their lies. There is good out there. We oppose deception. The bearers of false gifts are the ones that made promises about extraordinary weapons, promises that the Russians, the Chinese, the British, and the Americans all fell for, and their deceptions. There are entities in this that cannot tell the truth. And in fact, there are people close to them in the UFO community who are in the same state. They can't tell the truth. If you, you lose your free will, if you embrace this darkness, you lose it and you cannot tell the truth. And it feels to these people and to these entities that they can never regain the truth. The people generally don't know they can't tell the truth. They just lie all the time. And you know, you'll, some of them in the UFO community will come to your mind if you think about it. Uh, the entities know they can't tell the truth and believe they will never be able to and have fallen in this, into this trap and would like to bring us down too. But what you have to do is preserve your free will and your sense of choice. And you do that by aligning yourself with the good, which will always, always seek to enhance your freedom. Because the freer you are, the more profound your connection to the good can become. Because this is an ongoing decision. It's a moral decision. It's an emotional decision. It's a spiritual decision. And it is there every moment of every day. It, you have to live by love, compassion, and humility. We all understand love. And I got the visitors knocked me around until I figured out what humility is, believe me. <laughs> but what about compassion? I turn to my wife because this is the balancing force. Love is the positive side of this triangle, triad. Uh, uh, compassion is the balancing side of the, of the triad. And humility is the passive side. And you have to have active, passive in harmony. And uh, compassion is harmonizing. I asked Anne to explain compassion to me after she had died. And she gave me the most profound expl explanation of it. It's not a direct explanation, but if you embrace it, you become a compassionate human being. She said simply, each of us is all we have. And when you think of it that way, and you look at yourself and others through the lens of that realization, even the most terrible people, the most evil people become vulnerable and accessible to your love and care. That's compassion. That's the definition of compassion in just a few words. So the new world, if we can take it, is the world of good, of compassion, of love. Right. and. We're not going to be able to build weapons that, that do anything to the visitors, but they will be delighted to let us try. 
going to this. tells us, and you know so so well, because I agree with you, the new world would be the agap, uh, agathos Christu in the Coptic Greek, the goodness of Christ mm. in our hearts. Well, that's what the book right. he wrote. Yeah. We have to have, we have to get Jesus into ourselves. Jesus has to be in your blood, in your blood and in your mind and in your heart. But it's a very physical thing as well as being everything else. Being part of the good is very physical. But when you say Jesus into your heart, I mean, for me, that sounds religious. I know you don't mean that. How do we translate the religion of Jesus into the actuality of, of, of the teachings? Split the religion off. The religion was invented by a Roman emperor called mm -hmm. Constantine. Mm -hmm. Jesus is not a god. He is not the replacement for the sun god Apollo. Mm -hmm. Jesus was a human being who walked the earth for a few years in a terrible time and in a terrible place and got cruelly crucified for his troubles. There was around Jesus an extraordinary group of people. They're barely visible, but I, I pulled them out in my book so that you, you can know they existed at least. Uh, they, the young man who jumps up and runs away from the Garden of Gethsemane so fast that he leaves his clothes behind. Uh, the woman, the extraordinary and important woman who poured nard the, over Jesus's head in Bethany and the Essenes who were with Jesus were furious at her because they didn't believe people should be, they didn't believe in the use of oils. Nard was not just an oil. It was the most precious oil in the world at the time, taken from, the, from flowers that grow in the foothills of the Himalayas. And it, a, a bottle of nard was literally, probably that bottle of nard was the most, the, among the most valuable things in the whole of, of, of Palestine at, the, at that time. And he pour, she pours it over his head. And what is, she is saying is that, that his soul she is saying that his soul has a perfume and you can learn to smell souls. I guarantee you, you will learn this if you, if you work at this enough. And the scent of a beautiful soul is truly extraordinary. And what she was saying was his soul had the most beautiful of all scents. So who was she? He says she will be remembered forever, but we don't even know her name, and she's not remembered. It, it, when, the, when, the, when Christianity was twisted into this paternalistic movement, uh, she disappears. Well, she could be the divine feminine. She could be the purity of the feminine being. Which she was, but she was also a woman, and someone says here, Mary Magdalene, and I think that might very well be true that it was his wife who did that, because mm -hmm. his wife would have known him better than anyone. It goes on, though. There are other people like the upper room. Who was it who gave them the upper room? Uh, and the little, little mule in it, that, was, that, they were, that they were told, that Jesus told them they would find in the streets of Bethany for him to ride in on Palm Sunday. Somebody put it there. In other words, there was a hidden organization behind Jesus. And what about what happened to Paul? He's a thug on his way from, from just a, uh, 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 murdering St. Stephen in Jerusalem 
to Damascus to root out more Christians and murder them. He has an experience on the road to Damascus, seeing Jesus as a light so bright that it blinds him. I know a lot about this light. Uh, I'm blind and partly blind in one of my eyes because of uh, some inexperience. It's, it's powerful stuff. Okay, anyway, nope. um, he goes, he's taken into the house of Ananias in, in Damascus. And he comes out X amount of time later, one of the greatest theological geniuses who ever lived. And if you, if you separate what he said from the fake epistles, it's a very sublime message. Uh, there, there's some fake Paul, Pauline epistles. epistles but, but, but Whitley, how do we take all this knowledge, all your research, and I think you're one of the more lucid contactees, and, and inspire people for the amazing world we're coming into and what the government is on the threshold and really the new world we are entering right at this time. World I mean, of ascension. It's, it's, it's a world of revelation. So to leave us with some of, of words of the, of the forging a new path through this undiscovered reality, this unknown country, as they say. Well, that's why I named our website, theunknowncountry.com, because that's what it's about. Um, and why Anne called our book Communion, because it is about share, that kind of deep inner sharing. And those two things tell you where we're going. What's going to happen on this planet is that there's going to be a profound upheaval. The, this Earth has, has a habit of, of, of uh, orchestrating extinction events, and we're in one. We're in the, we're in the early stages of the climax of an extinction event. And when I say early stages, at any time now something profound could happen, like the Gulf Stream could stop flowing. We don't know when it will, but we do know it will. Scientists may tell you it's going to be in 30 years or 300 years, but the truth is it could be tomorrow. And when it does, everything changes immediately on planet Earth, and areas where lots of human beings live right now become unviable. That is going to happen. We are going to be, we basically by the universe and by our planet, we are being tossed into the waters of life and told, sink or swim. The age of Jesus, the age of Pisces, there's a reason that his avatar was the fish. And, this, and you did this to indicate that you were a Christian. There's a reason that my whole journey toward Jesus and New Vision started, it started actually at con contact in the desert in June of 2019, when a, a, a Vesica Pisces appeared in my room in front of me. So uh, he, he, the, the little fish swims around in the waters of the earth, healthy and happy, being given everything he needs. Then Aquarius comes, <laughs> the water carrier pours the water out. And what happens to the little fish? Well, it's called the birth journey. We're going down the birth canal. The visitors here are midwives. It's as simple as that. We're going to be born alive or born dead. It's partly up to us, partly up to them, partly up to the universe itself and the love of the good. And in the context of that experience, 
which is going to be real hard. There's a reason babies cry when they're born. Uh, we are going to either do this or not. We're going to either say the present paradigm doesn't work and can't work, or we're going to cling to it until we die. 